0: Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15 and then verse 21 and go on to verse 35, the end of the chapter. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to set the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Uh, I wonder if you were to think about all of the needs that our
1: world has right now. What particular truths from the Christian message does our culture especially need to hear? I mean, you could just say everything and that's true. But given the specific moment of our culture, what particular things do our friends and neighbors and colleagues really need to know is true? Identity's got to be up on that list somewhere, hasn't it? Because identity's become this all-consuming mass issue that dominates everything. But the interesting thing is that if you look at life through an atheistic, materialistic worldview, meaning there's no God and all there is is stuff, there is no basis for an identity that gives you any hope today or the tomorrow. And what we need to share with the people that we're connected with is the wonderful God-given identity that we receive as men and women made in the image of God. I was struck as Rich was praying about how there is a particular need in our generation to be showing people what it means for babies in the womb to be made in the image of God. Such that our generation would be the last generation that continues to kill those precious children. Maybe you're surrounded by people and you think actually one of the things that they really need to know is about eternity. How many people live all of their lives focused with a mindset that today and a bit of tomorrow is all that there is and that worldview dominates everything, dominates the way that you think about money and holidays and hobbies. It shapes the way that you think and reflect on suffering and pain and hardship But if you know that there's a judgment to come, and that after that, there's an eternity, that changes your perspective on the here and now. It doesn't mean they're not important, but it means they're not all important. Now, you could spend some time this afternoon as a family, with friends. You could start thinking, what are the particular struggles, emphases, battles in our culture today? And what does the Bible have to say in response to those things? That would be a good way to use some of your Lord's Day. But as you think about that list, one topic that has to be near the top is forgiveness. Because our world has completely lost touch with any concept of forgiveness. Uh, Our obsession with our own independence, it, it kills even any desire to pursue forgiveness. So there's a a theologian in America called L. Gregory Jones, he puts it this way, if all that matters is individual autonomy, me or my own, then forgiveness and reconciliation, which are designed to foster and maintain community, are of little importance. And if you add on top of that the the cultural obsession that we're facing with identity, the picture gets even bleaker. Because how does our culture view this discussion about identity at the moment? The, the uh, mantra is not just that you are free to be and behave however you may like. It's that everybody else needs to affirm and celebrate who or what you have chosen to be. So what happens in this cultural moment if you don't affirm and celebrate Somebody has chosen to be. Well, forgiveness doesn't cut it. Forgiveness isn't really something that we're used to thinking about anymore because we are consumed with ourselves to the point that we're not pursuing any form of community and reconciliation. So, if there's an identity that becomes the thing that is all important that you refuse to affirm and celebrate, then there's not an opportunity for forgiveness. You're cancelled. It's not even a thought process that you need to go and pursue somebody and reconcile a relationship. You're cancelled and cut out of the picture. And we only have to look around us, not just online, but also in person to see the toxic damage that that worldview is having. Our culture desperately needs to re-understand forgiveness. needs to know the forgiveness of God, It needs to see how God's forgiveness is lived out in an imperfect community like a church family that is part of the kingdom of God. And see relationships where when we face difficulties, we don't just cancel and cut out, we reconcile and bind together. But it's not just our world that needs to understand forgiveness afresh. We need to as well. Christians struggle with forgiveness, I think, probably for the whole of our lives. And we can struggle with it in different ways. Some struggle with the idea of receiving forgiveness. Others struggle with the idea of living out the forgiveness that we've received. And each of you will have some different way of knowing what that struggle looks like. So, so some struggle with saving grace. And you know in your head (laughs) that you can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But actually, for significant parts of your life, you push back against that because you can't quite get your head around that you don't contribute anything to your salvation. That's a struggle with forgiveness. Other people really struggle to live out that forgiveness in the way that we forgive other people. So you think about something that happened in your life during the course of this week. Hopefully, there will have been at least one moment where you sought to forgive somebody because we're all sinners. And I hope you try to keep restoring and reconciling your relationships as you go. So think about a moment where you sought to forgive somebody. I wonder if, like me, you can think of a moment where actually what you were doing was forcing someone to earn your, quotes forgiveness. Because it wasn't really forgiveness at all. It was some kind of repayment. That's a struggle with forgiveness. And then there's a third way that some of us really wrestle with forgiveness. And that is that that God has made us, as saved men and women, to have a growing sense of assurance in our faith in the way that we forgive others. That's what Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. That's what James teaches in his letter. And for some, it may well be that this real struggle to be able to forgive other people, it's robbing you of the assurance of knowing the joy of your salvation because not that you're earning your salvation, but your heart and life has been changed and you're seeing the fruit of that. Mike and Helen, it is super to see you. I wonder whether all of that is some, some kind of wrestle that you can relate to. Forgiveness, you see, it really matters. And that's why we're going to be looking at Matthew 18 this morning. I ran out of kingdom parables in Matthew 13. So we're going to look at another kingdom parable in Matthew 18. And Jesus is still talking about the kingdom. If you've got your Bible, just go back to the beginning of the chapter. I want you to see how... Jesus is helping his disciples here understand what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's the context for this parable. So you go back to verse 4, and Jesus is really clear that citizens in God's kingdom are not proud. They're humble. They're to pursue the lost and the struggling. So that's the parable in verses 10 to 14 of the sheep that wanders away. Citizens in God's kingdom love one another so much that they go after someone else. And then, verse 15, that that helps us understand this concept of church discipline. We often, and rightly, think of church discipline as one of the ways that we preserve the, the faithful reputation of the gospel in a sinful world, and that's right. But it fits in this context of the whole chapter of Matthew 18, because it is also about bringing back professing Christians who've been stumbling and drifting away from their faith. And that leaves Peter with a big question. It's why I asked Rich to read verse 15 and then jump to 21. So Peter's just heard this process of discipline, which means going after the lost and bringing them back, like the parable with the lost sheep. And then Peter starts to think on that and realizes this has got personal implications for me. This isn't just about the church doing something in church members' meetings. This is about me. This is about what happens if I go to somebody, verse 15, and I point out their fault just between the two of us, and they listen to me. Now what? (laughs) Have I got to forgive them? And if I have to do it again, do I have to forgive them again? Do I have to forgive them again? That's why he says, verse 21, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? What is expected of Christians when it comes to forgiving one another? That's the ballgame. Now, Jewish leaders... We're really, really clear on this. No ambiguity, no uncertainty. This is what they have in their rabbinic writings. If a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he's forgiven, the fourth time he is not forgiven. So three strikes and you're out. But Peter's a follower of Jesus and he's starting to understand that following Jesus is different. So Peter raises a Jew. Takes the Jewish standard, doubles it, and adds one. Up to seven times, he asks Jesus. And to all the Jews around Peter, they would be like, Are you kidding? Seven times? Jesus blows it out of the water. Not seven times, but... 77 times, and there's a debate in the manuscript is it 70 times 7 or 77 times? We don't need to get lost in the detail, the maths isn't the point because what Jesus is saying is not that you're to forgive 77 times but not 78 or 490 times but not 491. He's saying you're to forgive without limit. If you're counting, you're not forgiving. You're just putting off revenge for a while. That's not me. That's Artie France. If you're counting, you're not forgiving. You're just putting off revenge for a while. And that, that's why Jesus teaches what to us is now a very familiar parable. The first thing he wants Peter to know is that forgiven sinners receive a forgiveness they could never expect. Forgiven sinners receive a forgiveness they could never expect. So, we've just heard the story. This great king gathers his servants, he's going to settle the accounts, and one servant comes to him. Servant there meant broadly, could refer to some high official like a satrap or somebody, but uh, one of them's brought to them, and he's got this debt of 10,000 bags of gold. Literally, 10,000 talents. Still don't really understand what that means, do we? Well, if you read the, the commentaries, it's a little bit tricky to modernize. We're talking billions. That's the ballpark. Billions of pounds in our money today. And we're not told how he got into that pickle. um, And therefore it means it doesn't matter because the point of the parable is not the method of how this man fell into his problems. Jesus wants us to see that this is a mind-bogglingly massive debt and this guy has zero way of repaying it. So the king does what everybody would have done in that period, in that in that area of, of time. He threw this man and his wife and his children into slavery. Not that they could eventually repay it, the debt's too big, that's not an option. But that justice would be seen to be done and this man would be punished for what he had done. So Have you got some sense of the desperation of the situation that this man is in, right? Billions of pounds in debt. He's bankrupt, and his entire family is about to be sold into slavery. This is as bad as it gets. And the man drops to his knees. I'm not going to get on my knees because I won't come up again. He drops to his knees, and he begs the king. He begs the king. This is how desperate his situation is. And look at what he says. Be patient with me, and I will pay back Everything. Now, on the one hand, you can kind of see where he's coming from because what else has he got to say? He doesn't have anything. The only thing he can plead for is the king's patience because maybe he could find a way of generating billions. Of I mean, really, is, there's no way he's going to get out of this. This is, this is a pathetic and a ridiculous thing to say. What is the king's patience going to do? You're only going to live for one life even, even if, I don't know what age this this parable man was at, you know, even if he could do another 40 years of labor, he would still earn, on average salaries of the day, 99.98% of the debt would still be outstanding. So what is the king's patience going to do? This man is at rock bottom and has reached the end of the line. He's got nothing left. That's when the king does what nobody could have expected or hoped for. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Each of those three statements is staggering. The king took pity on him. Chose not to focus on himself. Or his own kingdom. Or the impact of what this fool of a servant had done was having upon him. He chose to take pity. It's the Bible's word for great affection and compassion. But it didn't stop with him feeling sorry for this servant. He does something about it something the servant could never have imagined would ever be possible he cancelled the debt that's the ephemi word that the bible uses for forgive but our translations helpfully shown us here what that forgiveness actually looks out very practically see for the king to say um i forgive you that didn't mean that the problem had just disappeared because someone's still got to pay. From time to time, I um, need to use a car. Well, Hannah's got ours, and there are a couple of families in the church who very kindly let me use one of their cars. Let's call one of those owners Frank. I imagine that Frank lends me his car one day, and I behave like an idiot in this fun, fast car, Go around the corner way too fast, completely lose control of the car and total the thing in a ditch. This is not going to endear anybody to lend me a car in the future, is it? There we go. I call Frank and, uh, and explain everything that's happened. Tell him how stupid I was and how badly damaged the car is. And Frank says, James, don't worry. I forgive you. Now, I wouldn't deserve that. (laughs) I'd been an idiot. But when Frank says, I forgive you, if he truly means it, saying that's okay on the phone isn't the end of, indeed, it's not even the beginning of what it means to forgive me because there's a crashed car in the ditch that needs to be paid for. Might be a hiked insurance premium, might be big excess, might be a brand new car. When when Frank says, I forgive you, he's not just saying, our relationship's okay, he's saying it's okay because I'm going to cover the cost of everything that you've done. That is exactly what goes on with the king on an even bigger scale. He doesn't just say, I forgive you, and off the the, uh, uh, unmerciful servant goes. He bears the cost of all of these billions and billions of pounds. That's the kind of sum that is sufficient to rock a kingdom. But the king says, I'll cover the cost. And then... He lets the servant go free, not just free from a debtor's prison, but free from this debt that would have been sitting around his neck like a noose, just constantly being a pressure upon him every single moment of every single day. It is a stunning picture of what we receive as Christians, isn't it? We all owe a debt that we could never repay, not a financial debt, A debt of a life of rebellion and disobedience against the king of heaven. And we could not ever repay it. Though because we're stupid people, so often our instinctive reaction in the face of this enormous debt is, God, just have patience with me and I'll pay it back. (laughs) Completely missing the unpayable nature of our rebellion against God. And the amazing thing that we all know as Christians is that God does for us what the king did for the unmerciful servant. He cancels the debt. When God says, I forgive you, he doesn't just say, it's okay, we'll just forget about it. The cost has to be paid. And it's paid by the son of the king Becoming the servant and taking upon himself the punishment that we all deserve. That's the only way that any of us can come into the kingdom of heaven. It's through a king who became a servant who suffered in our place so that we could have our debt cancelled. Now if you're a Christian here this morning, I really hope that by the time we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of our service, there will be a renewed sense of the unworthy, thankful joy in your heart as you take the bread and the wine. Because the only way any of us are in the kingdom of heaven is God gave his Son to save us. If you're not yet a Christian, I encourage you to look at this parable and see in your own heart that same temptation that the servant had. To look at that unpayable debt and say, God, just give me a moment. I'll pay you back. It can't be done. But not only can it not be done, God has done the only thing that could ever be done so that you can hear God say, I forgive you. If you're here this morning and you know that you've crashed the car of your life in the ditch, you can call the King of Kings and say, Heavenly Father, I repent, I turn away from that life and I can't earn but I can look to Jesus has earned it for me. Now, if that had happened to you, it would completely change everything, right? This is the moment where I'm trying to restrain my inner Michael McIntyre. I'd be doing the the skipping thing up and down the stage because you've got that sense of just unbelievable joy. This debt that he's talking about would have been life-consuming. There is no way there would have been a moment of his life when he didn't think, it's now in the 4.3 billion, 4.6 billion, 4.8 billion. It just keeps growing, and now he knows it's gone. He is completely free. Should transform every single moment of his life, right? Well, should have done, yes, because the second thing Jesus teaches us is that forgiven sinners must live out their forgiveness by being forgiving sinners. Forgiven sinners must live out their forgiveness by being forgiving Sinners. But that's not where the servant is. Verse twenty eight. The servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants. In the in the Greek, the verb found it's active, not passive. I don't want to over rely on that, but given everything that's about to go on, it seems to me that it's a glimpse into the heart of an unchanged servant who's literally just come out of the king's court, having been forgiven all of that. And what's the first thing he thinks of? I'm going to find, well, what does he find? He finds a fellow servant who owes him 100 silver coins. That's not nothing. 100 silver coins is probably what a laborer would earn in about 20 weeks. So think about half a year's annual salary. It's not nothing, is it? It is 600,000 times smaller than the debt that he's just been forgiven. And look at how he responds. It's awful from beginning to end. His heart has completely not been transformed by what has happened. He is bent on revenge and retribution. He grabs this fellow servant by the throat and starts choking him. He hears him say basically the very same thing that he's just said to the king, but it doesn't even prompt a moment of self reflection. And he throws him into prison. And that tiny detail matters, because where was he about to go? He was about to be sold into slavery. This man's debt is so small that it's not a just punishment. To sell him into slavery, that's not an option. The only thing you can do is put him into a debtor's prison. And none of this is ringing bells for this servant that perhaps he's just been forgiven something quite a lot bigger than what this man owes him. At any point in this man's life, if he'd behaved like this, it would have been completely unreasonable and unfair. But to do so, having just walked out of the king's throne room, that's, unforgivable and everybody else knows it they were outraged outraged that that the honor and the reputation of their king had been abused outraged that this other servant was being so horrendously treated and outraged by the arrogance and the horrible way that this forgiven servant was now not forgiving King's response, verse 34, is one of fury. Couldn't be clearer in verse 33 about what should have happened. You should have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you. In other words, those who have been forgiven must be forgiving. And if you don't forgive, if you refuse to forgive, it shows that you don't understand and perhaps have never been forgiven in the first place. Now in the context of the parable, which isn't the same as our real life, Jesus makes that point in the way that the story ends. So the king throws the unmerciful servant to Well, it depends which translation you've got. It will either say jailers or it might say jailers who will torture or it might say torturers because it's a unique word in the New Testament. It's referring to people who imprison but do so in a way that inflicts punishment. And that's what this king does to this man until, the parable says, he pays back all he owes. Of course, he never could. It's a parable. You're not able to draw every single detail in a straight line to reality. It's a reminder of the seriousness of the punishment that comes If you have seen something of the forgiveness of God and then your heart is completely unchanged, it's a powerful way, verse 35, of showing us that those who've been forgiven so much must forgive others. But do you see the way that we forgive others? That's the crucial thing. Our world needs to hear the unique message of forgiveness that the gospel has to tell us. It would be easy to sit there and think, Christianity is just this really demanding religion that forces you to do what is so hard to do. We have to forgive over and over and over. Not, Not just once, not seven times, or 77 times, or 70 times seven. And you could hear all of that like a law demand and think that's beyond me and it is there's no possible way that any single human being could do that not 70 times seven or even seven times but christianity you see it's not a self-focused religion it's a god-centered grace-giving religion the only way any of us can keep forgiving one another more and more and more, remember that's the context, is by fixing our eyes more and more on Jesus. Now that sounds like a really simple thing that you would expect a preacher to say, but I need us to tease out the detail because all of us are going to have to live out this parable for the whole of our lives. Because we're going to spend the rest of our lives until the Lord Jesus comes living alongside fellow Christians who are still battling with sin, and therefore we continually need to forgive one another. So, how are we going to do that? Are you just going to pull yourself up by the bootlaces? That's not going to work for long. We need to see the, the pattern, the source that God has given for us. And here it is it's that we see more of our sinfulness, and then we see more of what Jesus has done at the cross. And out of that, we are transformed to be able to forgive others. Not because we gee ourselves up to keep doing it. If you've been uh, at Emmanuel for any period of time, you'll have heard me talk about the two lines of Christian experience. So the longer you go on through your Christian life, uh, the more you grow in your understanding of the holiness of God. And you sit under preaching, you read the Bible on your own, you see more and more about how holy God is. But at the same time, the longer you go on in your Christian life, you also realize how more sinful you are than you thought when you were a Christian. And the gap gets bigger. So the paradox of the Christian experience, if that was the summation, if that was it, you'd end up feeling worse the longer you go through your Christian life. But that isn't the end of the story. Because at every stage of your life, what you see is that as you grow in your understanding of God's holiness and my sin, the cross of Christ bridges the gap. So what happens? I become more captivated, more thankful, more amazed at the sacrifice of Christ for me. Now, we need to understand that if we're to understand this parable. What is it that this unmerciful servant had failed to do? He had failed to remember the greater cost that the king had bore for him. And as we grow in our Christian life, we see more of the horror of sin in our own life, we see more of the holiness of God. All of that helps us see, not despair, not I couldn't possibly be a Christian because I've realized I'm more sinful than I thought I was at the point that I became a Christian. The whole point is to help us see that Jesus' grace is greater than you could ever imagine. And because that grace is at work in your heart, as that grows, so does the capacity To continue to forgive one another. That's why we keep looking to Jesus and to the cross. That's why as a church we're committed to celebrating the Lord's Supper every fortnight. We want to keep coming back to the cost of our salvation. That we would be thankful Christians. That we would be reconciled Christians. That we would grow in our faith and our wonder and our thanks for Jesus. But also that we would be knitted together As a family. See it's not that sins don't matter. Or that they don't really hurt. They really do. But we need to do what the king does in the parable. We need to do what God does in Jesus for our salvation. We absorb the cost of the wrong that's done to us as we promise to forgive what has happened. Now, sometimes that's going to be a financial cost, but probably not mostly. Mostly it's going to be some kind of emotional cost. It may be a betrayal. It may be an unkind word. It may be something that's damaged a reputation. Forgiveness doesn't just wipe those things away by saying, I forgive you. There is a cost to be carried. And it may need to be carried For years. But God. Will not leave us. As we carry it. And it will never. Ever. Ever. Be anything like what he's carrying. For us. That's what we. Remember as we come to the supper now. The enormity. Of the debt. That Jesus Christ has paid for us. Such that when the Father could say, I forgive you, it's not just because I'm going to ignore everything that's happened. It's because it's dealt with. And that means there is no more uncertainty, no more fear, no more worrying about whether what I've done in the past and I've said, Lord, forgive me, is going to come back and bite us again. God says it's paid for.